Welcome to the May 2nd edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel has reversed an IMR decision for what it says was a plainly erroneous finding. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Gonzalez or Niles versus the County of Riverside. Marisa Gonzalez Ornelas injured both her knees in 2004 while working as a counselor for the County of Riverside. In 2015, her treating physician submitted a request for authorization for Synvisc injections in both knees. A timely UR decision issued denying authorization, which was appealed to IMR. But IMR also denied authorization for the injections. So, she appealed the IMR determination to the WCAB. But the work comp judge denied the IMR appeal based upon the finding that there was no clear and convincing evidence that the determination was procured by fraud and that there was no clear and convincing evidence that the determination was the result of a plainly erroneous finding of fact that is a matter of ordinary knowledge and not a matter of subject to expert opinion. But the WCAB reversed in the panel decision. The IMR reviewer said that denial was because there was no documentation that the patient failed conservative therapies and that there is no documentation that the patient was suffering from osteoarthritis or severe osteoarthritis that did not respond to conservative therapies. But these statements by the IMR reviewer were directly contradicted by the PTP notes which were in the IMR file. X-rays of the knees showed some medial compartment arthritis and minimal patella femoral arthritis. The notes showed a diagnosis of osteoarthritis of the right knee, primary osteoarthritis of the left knee, and unilateral post-traumatic osteoarthritis of both knees. The notes also showed that applicant had definite benefit with Synvisc injections in both knees over the years. The WCAB panel concluded that denying authorization based upon a finding that there is no documentation when such documentation is in fact in the possession of the IMR reviewer is a plainly erroneous express or implied finding of fact as a matter of ordinary knowledge and not a matter that is subject to expert opinion. Expert opinion was not needed to determine that the IMR decision in this case was defective. It is within the realm of ordinary knowledge to conclude that it was error for the IMR reviewer to state that there is no documentation when such documentation is part of the record. The panel ordered the administrative director to provide a new IMR review of the treatment forthwith. There seems to be relentless constitutional challenges to legislative limits targeting the ever-expanding workers' compensation system. California has seen this play out in the Stevens case, which has been resolved in favor of the constitutionality of the SB 863 IMR process. But similar constitutional battles against legislative reform to the rising costs of workers' comp coverage are being waged in courtrooms nationwide. These battles seem to define the trend of what might be expected in the industry in the near future. 
And now the Florida Supreme Court ended the state's 2009 legislative attempts to put limits on workers' compensation attorney fees. The 5-2 ruling is a setback for business groups who say legal fees drive up the cost of workers' compensation insurance and threaten Florida's economy. The case before the high court involves Marvin Castellanos, who suffered head, neck, and shoulder injuries while working for Nextdoor Company, a maker of doors and door frames in Miami. The company waged an aggressive defense, but Castellanos won and received $822 in benefits at the end of his long battle. His lawyer, who worked on the case for 107 hours, sought nearly a $37,000 fee, but he was only awarded a $164 fee, the equivalent of $1.53 per hour, under a fee system the legislature approved back in 2009. Attorneys who successfully represent injured workers in Florida are paid 20% of the first $5,000 in benefits obtained and 15% of the next $5,000 in benefits. But the question is not only how the fees are calculated, but also who pays the fee. When workers' compensation litigation is filed in Florida, the defendants have 30 days to provide the benefit voluntarily. After that, they become responsible for payment of the attorney's fee associated with any benefits recovered as a result of the suit. This is commonly called a prevailing party fee-shifting provision. Thus, the Florida Castellanos case involves a fee that was to be paid by the employer, unlike California, where it is paid out of the workers' benefits. The court concluded that the law violates workers' due process rights under the state and federal constitution because it prevents challenges to the reasonableness of legal fees in workers' comp cases. The opinion also said that, without the likelihood of an adequate attorney's fee award, there is little disincentive for a carrier to deny benefits or to raise multiple defenses as was done here. By replacing the former reasonable standard with a sliding scale of legal fees, the legislature has eliminated any consideration of reasonableness. The effect on rates businesses pay for workers' comp insurance in Florida will be clearer when the National Council on Compensation Insurance reviews this case and new rate schedules. A spokesman for NCCI said the impact on Florida's workers' compensation system costs is expected to be significant. A second federal class action lawsuit has been filed against carriers for alleged hacking. Class action litigation has been pending for nearly a year against Berkshire Hathaway Homestake Insurance Company, its wholly owned subsidiary Cypress Insurance Company, Zenith Insurance Company, and the defense law firm of Knox Rickson LLP and others. The suit alleges that the defendants illegally hacked confidential information about workers' compensation claimants to help them defend claims pending before the WCAB. This month, a second class action has been filed in federal court against essentially the same parties. The first federal class action was filed by Hector Casillas as the lead plaintiff back in June of 2015. His second amended complaint alleges he was a client of the law firm of Reyes and Barsoom to litigate a workers' comp claim. 
One of the defendants, Palmdale-based HQSU Signup Services Incorporated, is the centerpiece of the case. HQSU is allegedly paid for pre-negotiating a pre-negotiated flat fee to provide administrative services for clients unable to come to an attorney's office due to physical, financial, or transportation limitations, and to assist attorneys signing a retainer agreement and filling out an intake packet with personal information. HQSU then uploads the documents to its allegedly username and password-protected website. Casillas alleges that HQSU failed to provide adequate or responsible protections against unlawful access and failed to report the hacking activity, so it is sued in the class action along with the carriers. The alleged hacking of the HQSU files was first suspected during an in-chambers hearing in a workers' compensation case pending before presiding judge Paige Levy. The case was being defended by Knox Rickson. Knox Rickson attorneys revealed to Judge Levy that they had Mr. Casillas' attorney-privileged intake packet and admitted that it was obtained from the HQSU website, but later said the Knox Rickson attorney that he did not know where it came from. Judge Levy ruled it was attorney-client privileged and ordered it to be returned. Allegedly, the downloading of documents from the HQ signup compromised nearly 33,000 intake sheets in addition to the Casillas documents. Plaintiff's experts say that the documents were obtained by a hacking technique known as directory traversal attack. On the other hand, Zenith claims the HQSU intake packet materials were obtained using a simple Google search of the claimant's name and thus were found in the public domain. Zenith attorneys claim that the case was before Judge Levy because Knox Rickson petitioned the WCAB for an order allowing certain discovery that may show that a runner or capper had procured Casillas as a Reyes client and Casillas had fabricated or exaggerated his claimed injuries. In any event, Zenith was not involved in the Casillas workers' compensation case and asked to be dismissed. So maybe that's why a second federal complaint has been filed by Adela Gonzalez, another lead claimant seeking class action status against the same carriers and others. Gonzalez was also a client of Reyes and Barsoom LLP in connection with a workers' comp claim. Nothing new is alleged that was not previously claimed. Gonzalez does not specifically allege how her case was compromised other than as part of the entire scheme. Since HQSU is a party to this case, no doubt, discovery will prove or disprove any claim that it is a runner or capper organization. Nearly three years ago, the NFL and lawyers for thousands of retired football players agreed to resolve lawsuits brought by former players who alleged that the NFL failed to protect them from risks of concussion in football. The court approved a class action settlement that covered over 20,000 retired players and released all concussion-related claims against the NFL. But some of the players have appealed that decision to the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, arguing that class certification was improper and that the settlement was unfair. The huge case had its birth in California. 
Back in 2011, 73 former professional football players sued the NFL in the California Superior Court. The case was removed to federal court at the request of the NFL on the ground that the players' claims under state law were preempted by federal labor law. More lawsuits by retired players followed, and the NFL moved to consolidate all of them before a single judge for pretrial proceedings. The cases ultimately ended up in a federal court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania as a multi-district litigation before a single federal judge. Under the settlement, retired players or their beneficiaries are compensated for developing one of several neurocognitive and neuromuscular impairments. The monetary award fund is uncapped and will remain in place for 65 years. Every retired player who timely registers and qualifies during the lifespan of the settlement will receive an award. If after receiving an initial award, a retired player receives a more serious qualifying diagnosis, he may receive a supplemental award. Of the over 20,000 estimated class members, only a few filed an appeal. After reviewing the case and all of the arguments submitted by the objectors, the Federal Court of Appeals affirmed the settlement. The appellate judges noted that it is the nature of a settlement that some will be dissatisfied with the ultimate result. This settlement will provide nearly $1 billion in value to the class of retired players. Though not perfect, it was found to be fair and just. The appellate court was satisfied that the district court ably exercised its discretion in certifying the class and approving the settlement. And now our fraud report. The drug maker GlaxoSmithKline in its quarterly financial report said that eliminating kickbacks has not hurt profits. This has been one of the pharmaceutical industry's most closely watched experiments. Does ending kickback payments to doctors undermine drug sales and profits? GlaxoSmithKline, the British drug maker, believes it has proved that raising the ethical bar on marketing practices does not necessarily reduce competitiveness. Better than expected 2016 first quarter results coincided with a period where the entire GSK group had operated under a new policy that bans payments to doctors who speak on behalf of the company. The CEO proclaimed that he is convinced that the moves are both good for business and good for improving the reputation of the industry. The company was fined nearly $500 million in 2014 for bribing doctors in China. The former head of the Chinese division of GlaxoSmithKline was charged with corruption in connection with the bribery scandal in which GSK paid off doctors and governmental officials. In the prior six years, the company was accused of spending $480 million on hospitals and its employees in order to increase the sales of GSK pharmaceuticals in China. Shortly after the allegations, their sales in the Chinese market fell 61%. As a result, GlaxoSmithKline announced it would stop paying doctors for promoting its drugs and scrap prescription targets for its marketing staff and it challenged its peers to follow suit. Britain's biggest drug maker also said it would stop payments to healthcare professionals for attending medical conferences. 
The Chinese authorities are also giving closer scrutiny to other big international pharmaceutical companies like Novartis, AstraZeneca, Bayer, and Eli Lilly. In China, GSK's business is still struggling, with sales down 28% in the first quarter of this year. But the company is expected to return to growth in China in the second half of this year. In the United States, many companies have run into conflicts over improper sales tactics, and GSK reached a record $3 billion settlement a few years ago with the U.S. government. AstraZeneca said in 2011 it was scrapping payments for doctors to attend international conferences, but others, until now, have not followed suit, and GSK's actions go even further. The shift is, however, pragmatic to a certain extent, since many decisions about which drugs to use are now made centrally by big insurers and governments rather than by individual doctors. The owners of a Long Beach trucking company face workers' compensation premium fraud charges. 54-year-old Alvin Chen and 46-year-old Fiona Chen, both of La Cunada Flintridge, were arrested by detectives from the California Department of Insurance. They are charged with multiple felony counts, including workers' compensation insurance premium fraud. They are the owners of Metro Worldwide Incorporated and Pacific Coast Distribution, a Long Beach-based trucking company. They are accused of providing fraudulent information to their insurer regarding the number of employees and what work those employees performed. Insurance detectives said the Chens paid cash to employee truck drivers to avoid reporting them to the insurer and reducing their payroll taxes. Audit showed they underreported payroll by more than $4.7 million. This cheated their carrier out of more than $1.6 million in workers' comp premium. The Chens are held on $950,000 bail each. The Los Angeles District Attorney is prosecuting this case. The manager of Gabilan Pizza in Soledad was sentenced to jail and felony probation for charges related to workers' compensation fraud. In 2014, the Monterey County District Attorney's Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit and the California Department of Insurance conducted an insured employer compliance sweep in Monterey County. Investigators had information that Gabilan Pizza did not have workers' compensation insurance for its employees. So investigators contacted the manager, 52-year-old Osama Zawide, who indicated that he had the mandated insurance in his name, despite the restaurant being in his niece's name and her having nothing to do with the business. He pleaded to two counts of making a material misrepresentation in order to obtain a lower workers' compensation insurance premium and one count of willfully failing to file payroll taxes with intent to evade tax. Zawide was placed on felony probation for five years and also ordered to pay nearly $5,000 in restitution to State Farm Insurance. He also must serve 120 days in county jail and pay more than $10,000 in fines. And now our regulatory news. Controversy has erupted over outdated labels on generic medications. 
Most Americans may assume their prescription medications are packaged with the latest up-to-date safety information, but that may not always be true when it comes to generic drugs. The companies that make brand-name medicines can change their product labels when they learn about new side effects that may harm patients. But federal regulations prevent generic companies from doing the same thing, unless a change has already been made to the corresponding brand-name drug. Generic drug manufacturers do not mind having their hands tied in this way because it, it helps shield them from potential lawsuits over side effects not mentioned on their medicine's labels. But it potentially jeopardizes patient safety. With generic drugs now prescribed the vast majority of the time, side effects often are first noticed in patients taking these medications. So three years ago, the FDA proposed a rule that would allow generic drug makers to update their labeling if new side effects information is detected. But the pharmaceutical industry, fearing rising litigation costs, has lobbied hard to thwart the agency and has won delays and allies in Congress. Earlier this month, the House Appropriations Committee proposed a spending bill that would prevent the FDA from using its funding to enact the rule as early as this summer. So now consumer advocacy groups are protesting. They worry that many drugs that Americans take every day may have outdated safety information since eight of every nine prescriptions in the U.S. are written for lower-cost generics. Right now, a generic drug maker cannot be sued for not warning about potentially dangerous side effects since federal regulations only require their product labels match brand name drugs. The Generic Pharmaceutical Association, an industry trade group, argues that the added regulatory requirements and litigation costs could eventually add $4 billion to the nation's health care bill. The generics industry is not alone in sharing such concerns. Two weeks ago, more than a dozen companies and organizations reiterated these same points. Among them, the CVS and Rite Aid drugstore chains, trade groups representing health insurers, pharmacists, and pharmaceutical wholesalers, and the Health Plan for Retired Auto Workers. And another problem arises with side effects of medications. The list of prescription medications that were once approved by the FDA and later found to be dangerous grows at an alarming rate, and many medications have been withdrawn from the market over the years. Darvon and Darvaset, for example, was on the market for 55 years. The manufacturer agreed to withdraw the medication from the U.S. market in 2010 at the request of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The FDA has also asked the generic manufacturers to voluntarily remove their products as well. Clinical data showed that the drug puts patients at risk of potentially serious or even fatal heart rhythm abnormalities. Paladone, a narcotic painkiller manufactured by Purdue Pharma, was on the market a half year in 2005. But high levels of Paladone could slow or stop breathing or cause coma or death. So the drug was recalled. And there are many other examples. And now there's a new worry. People taking common heartburn medications known as proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, like Nexium and Prevacid, are at increased risk of new and severe kidney disease. 
a new study of hundreds of thousands of patients in the Department of Veterans Affairs databases showed that new users of the drug are 30% more likely to develop chronic kidney disease over the course of five years. Thus, the risk of kidney failure was doubled. PPIs are prescribed to treat ulcers, heartburn, and acid reflux, and are some of the most effective forms of treatment available. These drugs are generally viewed as safe and may be overprescribed and continued for long periods without being necessary. But the study team found that people taking PPIs were at significantly higher risk of new kidney problems. The risk increased with the time that someone was taking PPIs, leveling off after about two years of use. The researchers concluded by suggesting judicious use of PPI and that the use be limited to when it is medically necessary and to the shortest duration possible. But since many PPIs are available over-the-counter, people may take them without the input of a doctor. And in other news, a San Jose company has earned its carrier's 15th Safety Recognition Award. And it is not often we hear of an award that is given for an exemplary safety record, especially 15 years in a row. Ultratech Incorporated, a leading supplier of lithography, laser processing, and inspection systems, recently received its 15th Safety Recognition Award from its workers' compensation carrier for its exemplary health and safety record. The award, presented by Berkeley Technology Underwriters, a Berkeley company, acknowledges Ultratech's successful efforts to incorporate safety as part of the company's corporate culture. This recognition includes its facilities in San Jose, California, Waltham, Massachusetts, and Singapore. And the Ultratech CEO claimed the company will continue to find ways to make further safety improvements. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.